Are you sitting quite comfortably? Then I'll begin. Hey, kids, comics! Comic books. An art form early alive. We can rebuild them. We have the technology. With digital downloads and bookstore penetration, which sounds a bit rude, but we can make them better than they were before. Better, stronger, faster. Kids Comics. And here are your hosts, Andrew and Michael Leyland. Hello, everybody. Hello, everyone. And welcome to Hey Kids Comics. Was that not a bit weird? It was a little bit. Were you bringing it in? It doesn't feel right, but I feel like I've, I've graduated. I've, I've become the mentor. <laughs> father becomes the son. Yeah. Son becomes the father. Yeah. If you learn nothing else from Superman the movie, <laughs> it's that, that, and that. You know, when dams break, yeah, yeah. it's tiny little alleys that get crushed. <laughs> <laughs> Something that your mum always makes fun of. Look, it's toys. And I just roll my eyes. Obviously just not engrossed in the film. And point out that Emmerdale has Gemma Atkinson in it. <laughs> what if Emmerdale got flooded? And, and, and Superman had to come and save Emmerdale? Yeah. Haven't we done this crossover before? I think probably where um, superheroes come and save soap operas yeah. and make them much better than they actually are. I think we might have done that. Yeah. I think we've done that before. Repetition. Yeah. Deviation. <laughs> and whatever the third one is on just a minute. Okay. I've forgotten. Would that make you Paul Merton and me Nicholas Parsons? I don't know. Yeah, well, listen to just a minute. No. Quality radio for a comedy show. Okay. Very, very funny show. Anyway, um, yeah, we're back. We are. Uh, it's a very sombre occasion. Which we will we will endeavour to treat in the, the manner that we normally treat sombre occasions. Yeah. We're going to do a tribute to Darwin Cook uh-huh. by covering um, Superman Kryptonite, which was the it wasn't really a mini series, was it? No, it was a yeah. confidential arc. Wasn't yeah, it? so yeah, exactly. So uh, that he did with Tim, so we're going to cover that. And the only a work of his we own and haven't covered. Is it? Is it? Yeah, apart from Batman Ego. Oh yeah, we haven't done Ego, have we? No. And we have we kind of mentioned Selena's Big Score, we've done Slam Bradley, we've done Catwoman. Are you sure we've not covered Big Score? I think we covered it in Slam Bradley. Right, okay. I don't think we gave it its own show, but didn't, didn't, I can't remember because it's such a long time ago, but I think we established that the Slam Bradley story and the Selena's Big Score story, don't they run in tandem or? Something, yeah. Something like that that we mentioned that the way it's printed in the trade paperback isn't the best way to read them or something. Right. I don't remember. I honestly don't remember that far back. But anyway, that's what we're going to cover tonight. But uh, we'll we'll do the usual trick of yakking over a few emails. Uh-huh. So people that take all the time and effort to uh, to send us emails in, we will read them and um, probably say stuff because that's the way this normally works. Isn't it? It's yeah. It's better to say stuff than not stuff. Uh, on a on a radio. Yeah, on a radio. Sure. Is that what we are? We're not, though, but... Mm. We're, we're not, but we are, but we're kind of... Radio has just become digital podcast now, yeah, hasn't it? Yeah, so, but we're not limited to time. That's true. So we can say what we want mm. for any length of time that we want. We're and not... Just you have know, as many breaks in as our we words as we... <laughs> well, why are Michael has breaks in his words? <laughs> what happened this week? Oh, Top Gear came back. It did, yeah. Yeah. 
it, it, it was a little bit TGIF. I, I, I can't. Uh, I can't imagine that it would have been worse if we'd have presented it. Mm. I think we would have done a good job. I think we'd have done it. Matt LeBlanc was good. Mm. I was quite surprised by Matt LeBlanc, but he's very laid back. He is. Isn't he? He, he needs to be laid back because Chris, Chris Evans, Evans was very TGIF. Tell tell the lovely listeners that you told your sister that Chris Evans was hosting Top Gear. Oh, she got very excited <laughs> until I told her it was our Chris Evans, yeah, not, not that her Chris, Chris Evans. Evans, not Captain America. Because <laughs> then she would have been like, "Oh, does that mean Thor's going to be in it?" And Loki, <laughs> all that stuff. But anyway, yeah, Top Gear came back. I didn't think it was as bad as everyone else thought it was. I think Chris Evans needs to calm down, get yeah. over the whole we now own Top Gear shtick, and it'll find its feet eventually. Eventually. The main problem with it for me was it's exactly the same show. Well, it is. It's Top Gear. They've not changed anything about the show. Oh, but they were very obvious in the things that they did change. Oh, we've got a brand new car and a brand new track, and we, we have we have two stars this time. In our reasonable price It did car. seem like they were trying to blatantly one-up. I like that they're on the, the track now they have to jump the jump. car. Yeah. That, that appeals to me. I was quite amused by that. Anyway, uh, Lou Giaconetti is our first emailer. Long time since we've heard from Lou. On this show, I think he's written into Palace. I and Andy and War Michael. You get to be War Michael. I do. That's pretty good. When I saw the image for the episode of the Addy Granoff shellhead swooping through the sky, a big grin spread across my face. I knew it was extremis, and that meant I got to hear you guys talk Iron Man again. And of course, that meant I could write this email. For good or ill, Extremis is the single most important Iron Man story since Demon in a Bottle. So much of this story informed the current depiction of Iron Man, either directly through the comics or indirectly through the movies, and then being filtered back into the comics, that to overlook it is inadvisable. The details of the story are nothing special, but the high concept of Tony as test pilot of the future and the nature of the interaction between man and machine were forward-looking enough to help catapult the character from middle-of-the-road anonymity to superstardom. And this is coming from a dyed-in-the-wool Iron fan who's been reading his adventures since I was 15 years old. Iron Man 321 was my first issue. And he's given us a link to Mike's Amazing World. So, uh, uh, Luke's first issue of Iron Man, she three it was from 1995. Mm. Okay, so should we look at the series gallery? Right. And uh, establish what my first issue of Iron Man was. Now, I'm not counting the fact that it was a regular backup in Spider-Man for ages. But the first issue of Iron Man I remember reading in its original American oh, form that. One, three, nine. was 126. Right. Which came out in 1979. Okay. <laughs> I remember it because that cover became iconic. Yeah. And then I, I was kind of buying it on and off and sporadically and reading the Spider-Man backups as well. And I pretty much read Iron Man consistently through Denny O'Neill and Luke McDonnell. I think through around issue 200 or so, mm. the, which is the Warmonger stuff. And then I kind of drifted away at that point. I don't know why. I don't know why I drifted away at that point. But uh, anyway, that, I just point that out to make it clear that Luke is significantly younger than me. Right, okay. Which depresses me. Oh, that you're significantly older than me. I, I would not mention it that way right. around. Oh, okay. Although 1995. Yeah. That, so that issue came out when you were born. It wasn't. That was August. Oh, right, okay. I checked the date. 
In a sense, Luke continues, it's fitting that Warren Ellis only did this arc. It's pretty clear that Ellis had no interest in chronicling the adventures of Iron Man, but by doing this story and nothing else, his contribution to the mythos of Shellhead is pretty much set. Ironically, the idea of Tony being beyond his past superhero exploits after Extremis was explored in the excellent miniseries Iron Man the Inevitable by Joe Casey and Fraser Irving, which reintroduced the Spymaster, the Ghost and the Living Laser in the context of Extremis. Adi Granov was the Iron Man cover artist for the tail end of Volume 3, Heroes Reborn Era, doing covers from all of the covers for issues 75 through 83 before being replaced for the Avengers disassembled tie-ins, presumably to get a head start on Volume 4. Granov is the most polarising Iron Man regular artist imaginable. At the time, some people loved his work and some despised it. There's very little chance of anyone changing their opinion. I like Granov as a cover artist quite a bit, even if the covers for the Extremis arc are somewhat underwhelming. But his covers are head and shoulders better than his interiors, and I just do not think he is well suited for that. Granov would continue to do covers on Iron Man and still kicks around as a Marvel cover guy today. The delays for the book are generally understood to be entirely laid at the feet of Granov. A follow-up miniseries, Iron Man Viva Las Vegas, featuring Granov art and written by Iron Man, Iron Man 2 director Jean Favreau, published two issues in 2008 and has never been completed. Picking Granov as the artist on a quote-unquote monthly book was seen as a chest-pumping piece of bravado from Marvel, which ultimately fell flat on its face, as Granov mostly does covers and conceptual art now, which is more his strong suit. I can confirm that reading this book as single issues was absolutely infuriating. I was getting the book through Marvel's mail order subscription, so I was literally not only living at the whim of Edison Granoff, but at the whims of the US Postal Service, so it was doubly frustrating. Extremis represents in some ways everything which was completely and utterly awful about this era of comics. Decompressed to the point of absurdity, extreme lateness, lack of continuity, cinemaphilic attitude, seeming disregard for the readers, etc. So this story exists in a strange middle ground for me. It's not a good story, but without this, well, Lion Man would be in a different place altogether. As heady as the concept of Extremis is, it seems that most of the Marvel brain trust weren't sure how it worked. Brian Michael Bendis, the man who supposedly knows everything about the Marvel Universe, treated it like a virus, right down to Tony vomiting it up in the first issue of Secret Invasion. Matt Fraction, supposedly the smartest man in the room at Marvel, doubled down on this, with the basic premise of his invincible Iron Man run that Tony no longer had the Extremis abilities, but still had a hard drive in his head, in which he stored all of the files from his time as director of S.H.I.E.L.D. Not sure how that's supposed to work. If Extremis was something which Tony could vomit out in Secret Invasion, how could he still have a literal hard drive in his head? The answer, of course, is that he couldn't, and that Fraction either didn't understand what Ellis had written, didn't care, or was given marching orders to walk it back. And I remember that, because he gives himself... He uh, makes himself brain-dead, so that Norman Osborn, acting director of S.H.I.E.L.D., will never get the information. Right, OK, because you read the Fraction stuff, haven't you? Some of it, yeah. Yeah. I haven't. The only writer who got Extremis correct after Ellis is Kieran Gillen. The Believe arc in Invincible Iron Man Volume 6, issues 1 through 5, deals directly with Extremis and Maya Hansen, with the idea that, as we see here, Extremis can be customised and fine-tooled to literally create any effect in the subject. One issue dealt with Extremis being used as a wonder drug to cure an inoperable disease, for instance. Another had it been used to create the inhabitants of New Camelot. The point is that Extremis was not some techno-virus that gave Tony superpowers, it li li literally sorry, it rewrote his DNA and could simply be vomited out of his body. 
To be fair, the father-son team of Charles and Daniel Nauf, who followed on directly after Alice used the effects of Extremis correctly, but did not directly address it in the same way that Gillen did. They did have Tony use the power in creative ways, including synthesizing a neutralizing agent for Spider-Man's spider sense so that Webhead could not sense Iron Man's presence. There was also a storyline with the Mandarin where he intended to use Extremis to kill the vast majority of Earth's population. A nitpick, and one which is a huge issue for Iron fans, Tony Stark actually revealed his identity back in Iron Man Volume 3, number 55, aka issue 400. So his identity was widely known for the balance of Volume 3. The last issue of Volume 3, an Avengers Disassembled tie, had Tony announced that he was no longer Iron Man, which everyone inexplicably buys into, so that Ellis can have the cat back in the bag for this volume. Only for Tony to re-reveal his identity in Civil War. Lame. Yeah, that does seem a bit stupid, doesn't it? Mm. A bit daft, that. All of this having been said at the time, I didn't think that Extremis held together all that well as a superhero story, and that opinion has not changed for me. But at the same time, I will always look back in fondness on the storyline for what it helped accomplish. It wasn't too long after these issues that my wife and I were sitting in a darkened theatre for an advanced screening of Iron Man previous owner of my LCS having hooked me up with tickets, and seeing my favourite superhero explode in such glorious fashion on the big screen. Sometimes the concept trumps the execution, and a great idea can lead to even more amazing things down the line, which is where we are now with Shellhead. The comics have been up and down, but the character has been transformed into the A-list, thanks to the efforts of Ellis and Granov. Thanks for the show, Luke. No, thank you, Luke, for, as usual, a fascinating email about uh, Iron Man post-extremis. So it's nice that ardent Iron fans, I like that, Iron right. fans, oh, that's pretty good, I uh, don't think Extremis is very good either. I was I was afraid when we covered that. that we struck a note. I, think, I thought we were going to get a bit of a kick in on that one. Yeah. Because it is, it, it is, it's always top Iron Man or top Marvel stories. It is in that Marvel Top 75, isn't it? Yeah. And, and I was reading it and going, it's really not that good. Hmm. And I was, I was a little bit pained because I thought, you know, like, do you remember when we did What's So Funny About Truth, Justice in the American Way? That Superman yeah. issue. That's highly lauded. Oh, yeah. And we tore it to, to bits. Because it was a bit naff. And it is one of those things, is this us? Is this just not working <laughs> for us? Right. Or are we seeing something here that, for some reason, it's been overlooked? Mm. And... It's it's very difficult balancing that, but ultimately all you can do is is say what you think, isn't it? Yes. You can't lie and say this story is a top ten story and deservedly so if you think it's a bit crap. Mm. That's that's all you can do, really. And we never go out to upset anyone. No, it's never our it goal just to happens along. The it way. does. It's never our goal to piss on sacred cows, <laughs> is it? No. No. If we're going to cover something like that, even Civil War, we wanted to mm. like Civil War. Yeah. Well, I did when we went into it. Yeah. And then doing this kind of made you go... Mm. Yeah, doing this show is the worst thing that's ever happened to me <laughs> reading and enjoying comics. But in a good way. <laughs> okay. Who's next? Who's next in our email? Andreas Lalaza. I, I got wrong last time, didn't I? Did you? Yeah, I, I spelled, I, I pronounced his last name wrong last time, I'm sure I did. It's Undress, isn't it? Undress Lareza. Right. That's what I'm going with. Yeah. Undress emails me in and says, No, 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 you <laughs> so, stupid so Englishman. Right. <laughs> That's wrong. <laughs> I do apologise, Undress. I'm not doing it on purpose, honest. Hello, Leyland's another great episode. I agree with your readers that the main World War Hulk series was low on plot and big on smash. I do think that was kind of the point, though. Yeah, well, it was, wasn't it? Mm. It was five issues of, of big fun smashing. 
And that's what it was. If you wanted more characterization from Greg Pack, I'd grab the very first Incredible Hercules Hercules oversized hardcover which served as both a leading and adjunct to the main series. It contains Incredible Hulk which morphed into Incredible Hercules and even took on the numbering. Also I'd heartily suggest grabbing the World War Hulk X-Men trade. In it are all three issues of World War Hulk X-Men and the coinciding issues of Iron Man, Irredeemable Ant-Man, Ghost Rider and The Initiative. All of those books brilliantly flesh out the main event from those aforementioned characters' perspectives. Between those two collections and the main World War Hulk book you get a greater story. Just a few notes. There have been a definitive winner in the long-running Hulk versus Thing conflict. Back in FF issue 320 and concluding in Hulk 350, a much less strong Grey Hulk beat Ben Grimm at his most powerful and looking like a pineapple to within an inch of his life. Hulk used his cunning to compensate for lack of sheer power. Sentry was originally a Paul Jenkins creation which got put back in the box after negative fan reaction to the character being shoehorned into past Marvel continuity. Bendis took him out of the box thinking he could do better with him, just as he did with Brian K. Vaughan's hood. In the end he could do nothing with Sentry except use him as a deus ex machina and eventually kill him in Siege. A quick peek behind the curtain, Pack admitted in an interview a few years after World War Hulk that he was forced to insert Sentry and the Stark satellite in the climax by Quasada and Bendis who had just launched his mighty Avengers title featuring Stark and Sentry. To find out what Greg Pack would have actually done, Greg Pack, see if you can hunt up What If World War Hulk. Anyway, that's it from me for now. Kudos once again. Cheers, Manfred. P.S. Love the five-minute Rocky review. We love the five-minute Rocky review. Uh, that What If, is that in the Planet Hulk tread? I don't know. I'm pretty sure that What If's in a in a book I've got somewhere. It isn't in the World War Hulk, so it may be in Planet Hulk. But I know it's in newer printings of the World War Hulk tread. Right, okay. So Greg Pat gets his ending out there as well. Yeah. So that may be worth checking out. Final email tonight, World War Smash from Chris Franklin. Hello, Layla's Nice examination of World War Hulk, a series I knew of but have never cracked open. I'm not a fan of the way the characters have been raked through the mud in events like Civil War and its follow-ups, which may make me a hypocrite as I love the hell out of the Civil War movie. But this World War Hulk isn't quite what I expected. I can see the Hulk's point, and obviously his former colleagues have been framed. They are guilty of plenty of things they should answer for under the Marvel regime of the time, but not planetary genocide, as the Hulk accuses them of. From the sound of it, maybe Rick Jones should have died here. What do you think? I, I, I kind of think that was the point of the story. Mm. But I think if you're taking that story to its Star Trek II conclusion... Right. And we did find a lot of parallels with Ratha Khan, didn't we? Yeah. If you're taking that to its logical conclusion, then having Rick Jones appear to die at the end, but not, yeah. actually plays into that, doesn't it? Mm. But I, th- I kind of think Rick should have died, but I'm always a bit leery of writers killing off characters that all, like Civil War 2, spoilers, as well with Bendis killing two characters. Okay. Because that's, isn't that his shtick now? He just I, kills people. The, the shock. Yeah. That yeah. ultimately just come back. Yeah. Hawkeye being exhibit Aimalod. Mm. Not like this, no Hawkeye. You're lucky it wasn't like that. You ended up coming back. So you know, so I kind of think it may have benefited the story if he did die. Mm. But I kind of like Rick, so I don't want him to die. And you never know, somebody may well, come up. They turned him into a Hulk anyway. So they did turn it. They turned everybody into a Hulk. They, didn't they? did. Isn't Betty a Hulk? In Jeff is, Loeb's is, is room, she a Hulk? and she, she's red, I think. And General Ross is a Hulk. Uh, yeah, General Ross is. Everyone's a Hulk. And now, now not not Frank Cho. Other Cho. That other guy, he's a Hulk. Amadeus. Now. Yeah. Amadeus Choi. He's Hulk now. Yeah. 
So it's like, what is, what's Marvel's fascination with, what's it called? What did John Byrne call it? D... Demystif, no, not demystifying. Deunikifying. Right, okay. Because how many Spider-Mans are there now? Two. Miles Morales, Peter Parker. Well, no, they did the Spider-Verse thing. Yeah, the Spider-Gwen. So there's three. Yeah. Technically. It's like, I don't get it. I don't get making your characters not unique. I don't... Yeah. Kind Turning of, them into a brand. Yeah. Well, maybe that's exactly it. Yeah. But no, I don't get that. <laughs> Whatever. Alright, Chris continues, the Sentry seems to be a genie Marvel let out but can't put back in the bottle. I've not had much exposure to him, but I can't say I care much. Seems like an independent Superman clone wandered into the Marvel Universe. But you guys made this series sound like a lot of thought-provoking fun, which is what Captain America Civil War is as well. Good timing. Chris, P.S. I had no idea what the hell you were talking about when discussing British food and soap operas, but I was laughing my ass off. <laughs> well, as long as we made you laugh even though you were sat there chuckling going, ah, What? Do they not get Coronation Street in America? Apparently not. Not on BBC America. What do they show on BBC America? Apparently, Doctor Who? they show Doctor Who, Star Trek, The Next Generation, and Top Gear. Right, okay. And of those, which of those three is not like the others? Star Trek. Yeah. Yeah. Star Trek's not a BBC show. So you're like, what? Mm. Well, it's got Patrick Stewart in it. To no, my, that's, that's, that's it. Yeah, that's to which I said, well, the equaliser's got Edward Woodward in it, so why don't they show the equaliser? Do they not, do they not have a, a, an ITV America? <laughs> I think they show some ITV shows on BBC America. That's weird. I think because it's all to do with rights and stuff. No, that, that, is that not like if Fox showed a HBO show, though? Because hmm. that is crossing the streams. Well, over here, Sky One is Fox. Sky One yeah. is owned by the Murdoch conglomeration, and they show Supergirl and... Hmm. Flash and Legends of Tomorrow. So all this kerfuffle about Supergirl changing networks next next season will make not the blindest bit of difference to us. No. It'll be on the same network. Hmm. So it doesn't make any difference. Anyway, yeah, uh, we'll call emails a day though, I think. Okay, and, uh, we'll plug a show and then we'll be back to talk about Darwin Cook and Tim Sale's Superman Kryptonite after this commercial break for Sunday's show. It was 1938. The country continues its slow recovery from the Great Depression, while war clouds loom throughout Asia and German aggression builds in Europe. Americans seek comfort and distraction. It was a time when the most popular form of entertainment was radio, but a new form had been growing steadily and was set to explode. It was to become the golden age of the American comic book. My name is Chris. And my name is Mike. Please join us as we explore comics in the Golden Age between 1938 and 1955. All genres will be discussed, from superheroes to crime, horror, science fiction, humor, and western. So join us for the Comics in the Golden Age podcast, available through iTunes and Stitcher, and visit us on Facebook or at comicsinthegoldenage.com. Every once in a while, maybe every ten years or so, a comic book talent will come along that produces work of such unparalleled genius that fans and professionals sit up and take note. Be it Jack Kirby, Jim Steranko, Neil Adams, Will Eisner or Frank Miller, these creators make us see old characters in new ways, changing the paradigm and tell stories so different and daring we wonder why no one had done it that way before. They make it look easy, and that is part of their genius. One such creator was Darwin Cook. Cook had a deceptively simple style, almost cartoony, but therein lay its particular genius. It looked simple. By no means was it actually simple. 
Cook's people, be they super beings or crumpled old PIs, were real people. They wore real clothes and drove real cars. The cities they inhabited were real cities. His women had real curves, his men real wrinkles and crow's feet. Every inch of Slam Bradley's life was etched into his face when depicted by Darwin Cook. His stories likewise seemed quite simple, but there was more going on in a Darwin Cook story than years of other writers. Cook could pace a story like nobody's business. When Cook used a double-page splash, it was because the story needed a double-page splash, not because it needed padding out for the trade. But he could slow a story down as well, cramming multiple panels on his page when necessary, but again, in a way that was never confusing. We had the distinct pleasure of meeting Darwin Cook at last year's Lakes International Comics Festival, where he was everything you've heard he was. If the Rat Pack were comics creators, they would have hoped to be as cool as Darwin Cook. Darwin Cook is no longer with us. People of staggering brilliance are always taken too early, whilst rancid examples of humanity seem to live forever. Unlike most of these rancid examples, though, Cook left behind a legacy, a body of work that deserves to be celebrated and enjoyed. New Frontier is his opus, a glorious celebration of the DC characters as I think we would all love to see them, bright, shining examples of hope in a world awash with cynicism and despair. It is a piece of work that should be as lauded as Watchmen or the Dark Knights, and I prefer it to both of them. His work on the Parker graphic novels is crime fiction at its finest, and he and Ed Brubaker took Catwoman and reinvented her as a strong, feisty crime noir character who enjoyed and exploited her sexuality without ever feeling the need to flash her boobs in your face. We have, in the past, devoted many a show to Darwin Cook's work and have, for the most part, never been less than gushing. It deserves it. Cook's series of covers recently across the entire DC line made me both joyous and sad simultaneously. Joyous because they were stunningly brilliant. Sad because the interiors were the same tripe that has been foisted upon us for years now. I hope DC release a book of just those covers. I'd buy it. To celebrate Cook's life and work, we're devoting another episode of Hey Kids Comics to his work, but nothing we say will do justice to the material he produced in his life. If you've never read New Frontier, Parker, Selena's Big Score, or Catwoman, go and buy them now. Read them, savour them. Unparalleled genius doesn't begin to describe it. Do you think New Frontier should be up there with Watchmen? Uh, well, I wouldn't say Watchmen should be up there, but that's a different argument, <laughs> but... Uh, yeah, I, I would argue that um, New Frontier is a perfect story. It may not be the best story ever told, but it's a perfectly told story. It's a perfect comic book story. Hmm? It, it does annoy me that. What? Watchmen, Dark Knight Returns, Killing Joke. <laughs> Where's New Frontier? Why is New well, Frontier not in that list? I'm sure it is. Yeah, it should be above them. Mm, but it's better than them. Yeah, but those titles have been around for around 30, 20 years now. And if they have stood the test of time, then they do deserve... So do you think New Frontier will be recognised more as we go along, as people start to realise it's genius? It should be. Right. Because you find this in... I was reading Doctor Who magazine this month, and they were on about every time you know they do their poll of best episodes. Yeah favourite episodes, whatever. It's fun to see episodes climb to the top as time yeah. judges them. And you go back and go, actually, this this isn't bad. Mm. And episodes that seem to be fan favourites slowly sink down the list. Yeah. And so the cream does eventually rise, is what it's saying. Mm. And so maybe... But I do think New Frontier is very 
you know, acclaimed and recognised just as much as Watchmen and that. A lot of people who've never read it know what it is. Do you not wish somebody would give Zack Snyder a copy of New Frontier, though? No. Do you not? Why not? Oh, because I don't want Zack Snyder to turn it into a film. What message would Zack Snyder take from that? Yeah. Wonder Woman should be raped. Yeah. Uh, it, it wouldn't. It wouldn't be New Frontier. At the at the darkest moments of New Frontier, there is always that element of hope, which it ends on. Mm. And I think giving that to someone like Zack Snyder probably wouldn't work out for the best. No. All right. Fair enough. Uh, Superman Kryptonite was, as Michael pointed out earlier on, originally published as a Legends of the Dark Knight style series for Superman called Superman Confidential and appeared in issues 1 through 5 and issue 11. Normally, that would be our cue to rail against late comics and lazy creators, but not this time, I don't think. Given the choice, I'd rather have more late work from Darwin Cook than none at all. And at the moment, we get none at all, do we? So, you know. Uh, ours is the hardcover. Yeah. Go on, what were you going to say? Nothing. I was just going to say, is it for to not give them any criticism for doing something that someone else would? Um, Simply because of what happened? Probably not, but I don't really care. That's fair. To be honest with but you. But my argument is, is it right to insult people who are maybe not less talented just because they're still with us? Are you saying that had we done this six months ago, when Darwin Cook was still alive, we would have probably mercilessly took the piss out of the fact that yeah. issue six became issue 11? Yeah. As we have done with Jim Lee, and who else have we done it with? At Extremis. No yeah. At Extremis, we mentioned the, the delays on that. You're probably right. We're, six months ago, we probably would have laid into them for that. Mm. But like I said, that, nah, not this time. That's not what the show's about. Okay. So, I'm not going to disagree with you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But at the same time, that's not what I'm in the mood for doing, <laughs> to be honest. Um, we're reading this in the hardcover. Uh, Cook's introduction, he refers to artist Tim Saylor's Ditko-esque, which I was gratified to see, as I've noted in this show a number of times, mm. the similarity between Tim Sale's approach and that of Steve Ditko. He also notes this is the first time he scripted work for another artist. In this case, the aforementioned Tim Sale. Did you read the introduction? Oh, I didn't, no. Did you not, did you not read stuff like that, yo? No. Why? I, I just don't. It's, I'd rather get into it. It's fascinating. You know, his, his ideas of how he found his way into telling a Superman story and why Superman's quite difficult to write for and yeah. all that. This hardcover is, is lovely, I think. The, the pop art design... I really like. Mm. And I like the, if you look at the back about the Darwin Cook and Tim Saylor in that very 60s yeah. style. He was a man out of time, wasn't he? Yeah. In many ways. Uh, if you take the dust jacket off, which has a new cover, which is prepared just for this volume, you get a glowing kryptonite, mm. which is nice as well. I like that as well. Um, we've just given a big glowing introduction to Darwin Cook. Tim Sale also probably needs no introduction to listeners of this show as we've covered his work many times we've fawned over it almost as much as Darwin Cook yeah with certain caveats here and there whatever the case Sale is often the best thing about projects he's worked on uh, the covers follow the same template as most comics nowadays they're poster images to be put on posters t-shirts promotional images etc etc there's nothing inherently bad about this but in the hardcover the reproduction of the cover is supplemented by the pencils in every single case the pencils are better mm. in my opinion you also get alternative 
covers. Yeah. Like the, the cover to issue one, Superman in front of Krypton blowing up. Um, the colour one, the, the Krypton blowing up in the background hurts your eyes. Yeah. The green's just too oppressive. But the penciled one's much nicer. And then there's a, a thumbnail. It's just like an alternate angle of Superman, isn't he? He's kind of looking down instead of looking at the reader. Um, issue two. If I scroll through, find issue two. Should have bookmarked him, shouldn't I? Issue two, Lois leans on her desk as Jimmy looks on. Hopefully you won't get shot in the face just for a laugh. <laughs> Again, pencils and thumbnail sketch. Thumbnail sketch isn't that different, is it? No. The thumbnail doesn't look, so that cover doesn't look like it changed very much over the course of its development time. Issue three, Tony Gallo, the main villain of the piece, stands in front of the huge piece of kryptonite that is also the image on the cover. Uh, no thumbnail for that one. For some reason. Or pencil. Or pencil. Well, that's the pencils. But you know, pencil sketch, mm. alternative cover. So maybe there wasn't an alternative cover for that one, I don't know. Um, volume four, or book four, is Lex Luthor standing in front of a window with a view of Metropolis behind him. Um, he looks very much, again, no thumbnail or no alternative cover, he looks very much like Wilson Fisk. I thought that was reading it, yeah. Doesn't he? So. You know, it's it's alright. It's not a cover that would entice me to buy the book, but... I don't <laughs> you're, issue, you're four issues into it, though, though. Yeah, and, and also I get the distinct impression that's not what these covers were. Mm. This story was written for the trade, let's yeah, be honest. Yeah, well, Confidential was, wasn't it? Yeah, there's, there's nowhere this was single issues. This mm. is a complete whole. Issue five, something rises from the ruins of the Utopia building. Again, there's no pencils. That's, that's, mm. I like that he's got a kiss curl. Right. Because that links him to Superman and mm. being Kryptonian. But again, there's nothing wrong with it as a piece of art. Mm. It's not a great cover. Uh, issue six, Superman fights that same something from the last cover. This time you do get a penciled thumbnail. Um, Superman's not punching bridge water. Bridge over troubled water. Yeah, yeah. See, that was subtle, that one, <laughs> eh? Good name, that. We'll mention that again later, lovely listener. Um, it's, there's nothing inherently wrong with any of them. They vary from good to okay. I don't... I think they're all that good, though. They're all a bit boring. Yeah, the first... The first issue ones and issue two are the best ones. Yeah, and, and the biggest problem I had with this series is that Darwin Cook only wrote it. Yes. Even if he did the covers. Because his new 52 covers tell an entire story just in that one image. Yeah. And these are very boring yeah. when Cook could have done the covers as well. I actually think that's that's a complaint. Generally, I wish Darwin Cook had drawn this. I wish he'd drawn that. Drawn Even it and if he didn't it. draw it, uh, you know, I'm I'm happy with the work that Sale produced. It's good. Yeah, yeah. But to just you know have to see Cook more is just this story's writer. To see Cook draw, maybe a if, maybe if he, if he drew it and and Sale inked it. Yeah, that would have been interesting. Well, instead of Jaybone, yeah, who normally does his inking. Yeah, but you know. Wishes were horses and all that. Yep. My grandma has wheels, she'd be a wagon and everything. As with Dark Empire, uh, I'm just going to do a straight synopsis instead of breaking it up issue by issue. Because, as I mentioned last time, I felt that that interrupts the conversation. When, you, when you're discussing a story like this, where it is clearly just one story. So, settle in. I don't think this one's particularly long, about a page or so, but uh, we're going to give it a go. And here we go. 
In the early days of Superman's career, the Man of Steel is still not entirely sure of his abilities or limits, but still tries to do his best for Metropolis and the world, whilst wooing the Lois Lane with trips to Paris and preventing the Royal Flush Gang from committing their card-based crimes. In his everyday guise as Clark Kent, ace reporter for a major metropolitan newspaper, The Daily Planet, he's given a top-secret job alongside other ace reporters, Jimmy Olsen and Lois Lane. Prove Anthony Gallo is a crook. Gallo has recently moved into Metropolis and built his casino, the Utopia, but Planet's editor Perry White believes Gallo is up to his neck in vice, prostitution and drugs. Metropolis is a clean town. Perry wants it to stay that way. Clark and Jimmy set up surveillance while Lois has the more difficult job of getting close to Gallo. Lois achieves this by making Gallo think she's been punished by Perry and made to do a puff piece article, and she appeals to his vanity. It doesn't hurt that Lois is pretty hot. Superman is also pretty hot, trapped as he is under lava as an erupting volcano traps him beneath the surface. He manages to escape, but he continues to wonder about his limits, a concern he shares with Jonathan and Martha Kent. He doesn't share it with Lois, who he stood up, so it shouldn't be surprised that Lois has gone after Gallo instead of just hanging around. Superman confronts her about it, but Lois points out that it is unreasonable for him to expect a level of commitment from her that he isn't prepared to provide himself. The Royal Flush Gang report back to Lex Luthor. The earlier attack was down to Luthor wishing to test Superman's abilities and limits, and Luthor seems moderately impressed by what he's learned. At the Schuster Memorial Hospital, Luthor promises a new x-ray machine for terminally ill children, but Gallo goes one better, offering the profits from his casino, $42 million, to build a completely new wing for the hospital. The catch is, Superman himself has to accept the donation personally. Jimmy interrupts to tell Lois that Gallo seems to be knocking over Lexi's payroll trucks. Superman speeds that way, but as he flies over the Utopia Casino, he falls out of the sky. Vincent Gallo stands naked in a room bathed in a green light. Despite requesting no disturbances, a call distracts him as Superman hits the floor. Bruised and battered, Superman rises to face some of Luther's goons, who coincidentally have chosen this moment to try out their neuro-scramblers and plasma-fed gloves. Luther is confused. Even those weapons shouldn't have felled the Man of Tomorrow that easily. Gallo leaves his green room, closing the door behind him. At that precise moment, Superman stands, still wounded and hurt, but no longer weakened. He destroys Luther's men, but it's his pal Jimmy that helps him away to Clark's apartment, where Clark opens the door. Lois tells Perry she's not convinced that Gallo is guilty. She thinks it's a smear campaign by Luther. Luther also tells Lois that Superman isn't as invulnerable as everybody believes, showing her footage of his goons beating Superman up. Elsewhere, Ogilvy, a reporter of the planet with an unfortunate gambling habit, sells Perry, Lois, Jimmy and Clark out. Gallo speaks to Lois, and she in turn brings in Jimmy. Luther is more interested in what caused Superman's fall, so he has his people analyse the area, which yields interesting results. Gallo has a large substance in a lead-lined room that is alien in origin. After some soul-searching, Superman returns to Metropolis to pick up the check for the hospital wing. He too spots the strange room in Gallo's casino. Upon arrival though, Superman is told that Gallo is actually an alien consciousness that came to Earth in a slab of kryptonite that embedded in baby Superman's rocket ship. He was found by the Gallo family and used as a lucky charm. Gallo is, as Perry suggested, an irredeemable bastard, but over time the consciousness has been able to usurp Gallo's will, making him a better person. And he can tell Superman about his past and where he came from. But to do this, Superman has to open the lead door and expose himself to the large kryptonite slab.
Superman takes the being up on his offer. Tying Gallo to a chair, the consciousness takes Superman back to Krypton, where, for the first time, he experiences his home world. Back in the Utopia, Luther and goons arrive, preventing Lois from closing the chamber door, threatening Lois and Jimmy with death if they interfere. Gallo breaks free, causing a distraction, but the consciousness has changed him, and he commits suicide. The distraction also lets Jimmy get a gun, and he orders Luther out of the room. Luther, however, has a slab of kryptonite that Gallo wore in a ring on his hand. With the door shut, Superman recovers, and then, in a lead shielding, he takes the huge kryptonite slab to the sun. The energies allow the consciousness, whose name translates to Bridgewater, to escape and return home. Superman also returns home, content. He is mortal and has confronted that mortality. Now he needs to be a little bit more relaxed in both his guises. And as Clark Kent, he takes Lois out on a date. Oh, Not really a lot too when you sum it up like that, is it? Did I miss out any major beats? I don't think so. Uh, I missed out a lot of fighting. Yes. But that's always the cool bit in a Tim Sale Darwin Cook book. Uh, Cook says in the introduction that he based this on Superman issue 61 from 1949. Right. He mentions that in the uh, his little text piece introduction. That sounds like a really cool story and if I'd had time I would have dug it out and read it. Because mm. it does sound quite fun. But I didn't, so... Each of the six chapters or books, as they're referred to in the actual comic itself, begins with a monologue of the consciousness that has somehow managed to get trapped in a slab of kryptonite. Did it ever explain how that happened? What? How the consciousness got trapped in the kryptonite? No. Good. Or at least I don't know. Because I, I thought, I was reading it going, so how exactly did Bridgewater get trapped in the kryptonite? Mm. I didn't... I didn't quite follow how that happened. I didn't really like any of the kryptonite stuff in this. Did you know? No. Oh, see, I didn't mind any of that. I, I thought that was... It, it's quite an interesting way of bringing kryptonite into the story. It's an interesting way, just not a very good one, I'd argue. Did you not think? No. Okay. Why not? Well, the idea of something living inside kryptonite, that the kryptonite was a living consciousness... Yeah, but the kryptonite itself isn't a living consciousness. Bridgewater is trapped yeah. in that huge slab of kryptonite. Now, my argument with it is I didn't quite understand how that occurred. Mm. Because at the end of the story, it isn't just his consciousness. His body's yeah. in there, and Superman frees him, yeah. and he presumably returns to his home people. So how did that happen? How does he survive being encased in Kryptonite? How did he manage to transfer his consciousness over to Gallo? All of that was is yeah. kind of vague, but because it's a science fiction story, you kind of go with it. It's, it's quite a, a large portion of the story, so you can't ignore it either. No, but at the same time, it does provide the story with a neat little twist. Yeah. In that you're going through this entire story, or I was, you may be different, um, I was going through the story assuming the kryptonite consciousness was going to be evil. Mm. And I thought it was a nice twist that it was benevolent yeah. rather than malevolent. Because he's already fighting two bad guys here, Luther and, and Gallo. Mm. And I also liked the twist that because of Bridgewater, Gallo wasn't the bad guy either. Yeah. So, fair play to Cook for pulling that twist off and it not being telegraphed. I mean, let's be honest, Superman's what, 76 years old now? 77 years old? Something like that. If you can do a story with Superman in it that has a twist in the story that isn't telegraphed 
and hasn't been done before, or that I've read, that catches a reader like me, who's been reading this crap for 30-odd years now, off balance. Yeah. Fair play. Mm. You've done a good job, though. And if to get that twist I have to buy that Bridgewater has survived being encased in kryptonite for 27 years, then okay. Yeah. You're still struggling with it, aren't you? No, because it's, it's a twist, but I'm not 100% that it's a good one. See, I liked it. I, no, I liked that he was a good guy at the end of it, but it doesn't work. And so, it, to me, it seems like to buy the twist, you have to ignore some plot details, and you should never do that in a story. Well, it's not ignoring plot details. It's, it's just accepting what you are given. He's kind of glossing over how this happens. But you shouldn't gloss over something for the sake of a twist. All right, what explanation would you have bought for Bridgewater being encased in kryptonite and then staying there? I I would have bought that the kryptonite was a living creature. That the kryptonite itself had this consciousness. My big problem with is that there was a person living inside it. Hmm. Because he does say he does say on the very first page he's linked to the Kryptonian creature, but I interpreted that as he's linked to Superman. Yeah. So let's say it was just a consciousness, and so yeah. the Bridgewater he saw on Krypton was a manifestation of that. And then at the end, when Superman flies it into the sun, and it was just this being freed, I'd have mm. bought that. But right. the fact that it's a person. The fact that there's a it. living body yeah. that's trapped in the kryptonite slab for 27 that, years. That was... Well, why, though? Because there, there, we're given no indication anywhere that Bridgewater needs to breathe. He can yeah. fly in the vacuum of space, so the implication there is he doesn't need to breathe. Mm. He's an alien life form. That word alien means his biology may not work in anywhere close to what we understand. Yeah. So although I found it slightly woolly as to how he ended up um, encased in the kryptonite slab. Mm. I was ultimately able to go with it because of that. He's an alien being. Yeah. And at no point does Cook try to establish what he can and can't do in terms of his well, biology and stuff like that. until that point, it is written as though the kryptonite is alive. Yes. The cri- and it's only right at the end when, oh yeah, I'm, I'm an alien. Yeah, it's only in Chapter 4 we learn that there's an alien inside the kryptonite. Yeah. But yeah, we are led to believe throughout the the first four chapters of this story that the kryptonite has consciousness. And I'd have pre- preferred it to just be a, a kryptonite with consciousness. But then, how would the kryptonite have got consciousness? I don't know. <laughs> All right, so you could buy that. Okay, but if, not that Bridgewater's trapped in it. If it established that Krypton was a very kind of not spiritual, but an, an alive planet, yeah, like like Mogo, yeah. And and so that this shard is the only large chunk, large sentient chunk that's landed on Earth. I'd have bought that. Um, well, see, because the explanation that we're given for Bridgewater in this is nothing more than he's the Watcher. Yeah. From Marvel Comics. He's there to observe and record, but never interfere. Mm. And so, yeah, how he gets linked to Superman and, and how he gets trapped in the kryptonite slab, all of that's kind of glossed over a bit but I seem to have no trouble accepting it more than you did <laughs> yeah. you, you were like, would have preferred a better explanation for it but alright so it was that a deal breaker for you then because that is the point of the story that's the twist in the story that he's not a malevolent life form yeah well I'd, I'd read it more as a story about Superman what makes you human yeah I mean and that angle works better 
mm. because the whole the, the story is about Superman's alienation and loneliness. Yes, and it manages to tap into that idea that Brian Singer wanted to do with Superman Returns but failed. Mm. His his idea was Superman's invulnerable, yes, but his heart isn't. Yeah, so that's what you tell a story about, and that this story is what Superman Returns wanted to be. It's a story about Superman's feelings and emotions and his concern that he thinks he's invulnerable but he doesn't know he's invulnerable yet. Yeah. Uh, as it, as new, counted numerous times throughout the story, am I going to survive this? Is this the time I've pushed it too far? Mm. And all of that is, is beautifully handled. Yeah. Maybe it didn't need that science fiction twist then. Maybe it didn't need Bridgewater. I don't think it did. It's just a story about what makes Superman human. Yeah. Because on that level it works. On yeah. that level it works exceptionally. I mean, I think it works anyway, but mm. obviously maybe we're a slightly <laughs> difference of opinion there. Uh, always lovely to see the Royal Flush gang. I like that the the end of the fight is literally signposted on the first panel. Yeah. It says liquid nitrogen on yeah. the truck. Yeah. That's so, well, I said to you when you were reading it this afternoon, Yeah. I said, don't just blitz through this. There's a lot of lovely little subtle touches in the artwork mm. that do signpost story events or just little neat character bits. And that's one of them. Yeah. You know, the very first panel of, of the truck flying through the air and Superman catching it signposts how the things are going to end. I love the Royal Flush Gang. Yeah. The Royal Flush Gang, to me, are everything comics should be. <laughs> they are big and dumb and stupid and the the stick makes no sense <laughs> and the costumes are ridiculous and the plans are always even more ridiculous and I love them because of that. They're the same reason that I love Crazy Quilt. <laughs> In that, yes, I know they're incredibly stupid. I don't care. Yeah. I just think they're massive fun, the Royal Flush Gang. On our role, they turned them into bikers. Did they? Yeah. Uh. And the, the costumes were basically, they had, I think they had a, a playing card t-shirt on or something. Uh. So it's not quite as fun. No, not not really. Arrow, which is do, do the bikes fly at least? No, oh. no. Don't confuse it with the Galactica 1980. <laughs> I always get those two mixed you up. You do Galactica 1980 <laughs> and Arrow, very similar shows in in a lot of ways. Um, Kook has said in in numerous places, including the introduction to this volume, that he is specifically attracted to the iconic versions of the characters, which is why this is Superman early in his career. He seems to have developed a relationship with Lois earlier than other retellings. Yeah. But it works for this. I mean, I suppose we could have done a continuity nitpicks for this. If you'd have thought about it. If I'd earlier. thought about it at the time. But see, the problem you've got with that, well, which, which era of Superman am I continuity and nitpicking? That's true. Am I nitpicking the 1940s original where he didn't have any kind of relationship with Lois to speak of? Am I nitpicking the Bronze Age where she was Superman's girlfriend? Yeah. But then this is early in his career, so that can't be that. Am I nitpicking the post-crisis version? Hmm. Where she doesn't date Superman at all. She dates Clark. So Well, she's dating Superman in this. Yeah. Clark. So which, which version of Superman am I nitpicking and continuity analyzing? That was my problem. Yeah. I couldn't decide which, which well, one to look at. The best argument for that I've seen was in uh, the New Frontier Special Issue 1. Yeah. And it's it's pretty much just Cook saying through his characters. I think it's Rip Hunter. Doesn't matter. Rip Hunter says, well, a lot of people have said, what continuity does this exist on? What Earth? Plan on? Well, the continuity exists in his reality. <laughs> just en enjoy it as a story. It's called your imagination. Just go with it. 
so yeah so ultimately I had that in the back of my mind as well because I just yeah. bought that comicsology and it was like okay to continuity nitpick this would seem to be a little bit mm. contra to what the story that he's telling so so we didn't bother um, let's be honest the reason Cook set it here is so he can give Superman some concerns yes and as we've already mentioned the, the main thrust of the story is about facing one's mortality and having Superman be concerned about exactly how invulnerable he is because mm. he's never tested any of that so he doesn't know So, and I don't even recall this being explored before I can recall Lex Luthor testing Superman Yeah. alright so he's invulnerable to fire and he's invulnerable to bullets and, and all that stuff but I don't recall Superman ever testing himself like that See, I remember it, but I don't know where from. Or right. if it was even from this. Yeah, it may have been. Because um, I remember it's Lois and Clark, and I know he did a little bit of in post-crisis Superman, but Superman normally just appears and he's fully formed. Yeah. He doesn't really... He, he accepts that he's bulletproof, so he just assumes that his lungs are bulletproof. Yeah, that's one of the cleverer parts of this. Yeah, actually, it's, yeah. he doesn't know that his internal organs are bulletproof. So all of that, all of that was quite interesting. I thought uh, sales are. I think sales are much better in this than Captain America White. Yeah, I think the art in this is really quite stunning. And there's some beautiful panels of Superman flying, especially the panel of him catching the oil tanker. I really like that. I really thought that's good. I like that it's cracking and buckling under his hands. But yeah. even though he's still a young Superman, he knows not to put enough pressure on to break it in half or whatever. See, I still don't think Sale's entirely suited for Superman, which is why I think that Cook might have been a better artist choice on this. I See, I don't disagree with you. I think he does better suit Batman yeah. than he does Superman. I don't... I don't think he does anything wrong in this one. No, it's not that he does anything wrong. It's just he's not... His Superman work's never been as strong as his Batman work. No. Whereas, if you think Darwin Cook, that's a perfect choice for a Golden Age Superman story. Yeah, and there's nothing in this story that it couldn't have been set in the 50s, 60s. Mm. It couldn't have been set in that nebulous 60s milieu that Darwin Cook likes to work in. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, that does go back to us both would have preferred Cook to have drawn it, but he didn't. <laughs> so yeah. we just have to accept so that. So we just have to accept that, yeah. Nice scene transition on page 19 obviously I'm going off the page numbers in the hardcover here not in the, the individual issues between um, the the vat blowing up and yeah. everybody trapped in the liquid nitrogen and then the um, ice. ice cubes thank you the ice cubes in Lois's champagne glass and again the artwork here Sale captures the romance of being Superman and it's a three page pull out yeah and it's very, very cinematic. Because there's, there's a lot of romance to the Superman character. He's a very romantic character. Yeah. Being able to fly, being able to sweep you off your feet, the whole perfect man thing. But one of the strongest scenes in the book is uh, the breakup yeah. scene. Yeah, yeah, that is really, really good. Because it's one of those, again, it goes back to the Brian Singer thing, that you can hurt Superman, mm. but you've got to hurt him emotionally. Yeah. Because, you know, bullets just bounce off his eyes. The, yeah, the, the panels pulling back from the ice cubes to the champagne glass to the champagne bottles, the champagne glass to Lois drinking to the candles, and just three pages of just pulling back yeah. until it reveals that they're on the Eiffel and Tower. The colouring's very nice. Colouring's well. gorgeous. The art's gorgeous in those bits. It's a nice pullback. Because it just looks like they're on a balcony. 
Yeah. And then it just continues to pull back to reveal that they're at the top and of the Eiffel Tower. It was quite interesting to that Superman, he overcompensates yes. to make up for a, a lack of time. Yeah. It's all style and not much substance. Yeah, I've took her to Paris and got a champagne on top of the Eiffel Tower, but does it really make up for being able to give a proper amount of time? Mm. So, I don't know. It's, it's quite cool, though. I do wonder how they got all those candles up, though. Well, he's super fast. <laughs> He'd carry him up in his cape. Although Lois is wearing his cape. Yeah. Which I thought was a really nice touch. Because mm. that's playing into the little furry tail aspect of Superman. She's Little Red Riding Hood. Yeah. Which is, so again, that's a nice touch as well. And then the next page, what are they all doing on the roof? The, I got that they were on the roof, though, so nobody overheard what they were discussing. I suppose there is an element, because that's a bit later on, isn't it? Yeah, that Ogilvy is listening in. Is, is, is the no privacy in Perry White's, in the editor's office? It's, it's my interpretation of it was yes, but people would see that he's brought Clark, Jimmy and Lois into the editor's Clark, office. Clark, Jimmy and Lois are always in the editor's office. Okay, but that that was my interpretation of it. He's talking up to the roof where there's no pride there's some, there's some nice skyline shots. Yeah. But I did wonder why they're all up there. I, that's, I just got that he wanted to hold this meeting in private. He didn't want anyone seeing that it was going on. He didn't want there being any potential for people overhearing. Are more people not going to notice them all going upstairs together? Not if he's done it not together. I suppose. Not if he's just done it like where I'm just nipping out for some smokes and then Lois has gone, I'm just going to go and powder my nose. Yeah. And then Clark's gone, oh, photocopies out of printer, I just need to go and get say, some paper. Say Ogilvy smokes though when he's chosen this time. This, this well, time now you're just deliberately trying to find holes. <laughs> okay. <in>. Yeah, I am. Because <laughs> on the whole, I thought that was a great scene. Yeah, it I was. The briefing scene was really good. Very kind of. It, it, straight into it as well yeah and it's Perry knows Gallo's dirty and he needs to prove it not just for a good story yeah he's doing it for the good of Metropolis which has this reputation of being a clean city because from a like a storytelling point of view we know nothing about this guy no but immediately in one monologue he's the bad guy that's what they're gonna do yeah and, and he's setting them up as proper investigative journalists yeah so we're actually seeing, do, seeing them do some proper journalism which is really cool and Lois is as tenacious and attractive as ever but I like I like Cook and Sale's reinvention of Jimmy mm. where, he, where they've cast him as this scrappy and somewhat pugnacious teen but with a good heart he's scrappy do yeah I like it though I think it's one of the best Jimmys I've seen you get the idea Perry pulled him off living off the streets yeah he's enough He's, he's recognisably Jimmy Olsen, but he's not, oh, golly, gosh, yeah. I broke my camera. Yes, Chief. Coffee, Chief. He's recognisably Jimmy Olsen, but given a reason for being here. Yeah. There's a reason that this well, Jimmy is he's, here. He's a, he's a nice mix between Jimmy Olsen and shot-in-the-face tough guy Jimmy Olsen. Yeah. Uh, in fact, all of the Clark Jimmy Lewis scenes are great. Mm. I think they're all pretty much highlights of the boot. The dialogue, again, has that 40s rat-a-tat-tat feel yeah. of, like, 40s noir movies. And it's, some of it's genuinely charming. Mm. Some of the dialogue in this is genuinely good. I love the bit where Lois bets all the reporters on page 29. Not only will she get an interview with Gallo, but he'll send, but a, car. He'll send a car. And that's brilliantly done. Because she gets to the end of the conversation and... Uh, Ogilvy says to her, you didn't ask, and oh, do you mind if you send a car to pick me up? Yeah. And then he's got to pay up. And the thing I liked about that, it's a lovely setup of Ogilvy's gambling problem. 
Well, not just that, but it's setting up Ogilvy as an important character in this. Yeah, without hitting you over the head that he's in it. Because how much is he in it? Like three pages, if yeah. that. And then he's over quite the set. Important at the end. Yeah, and we never get that Perry found out about it. Mm. We never understand if if Gallo told Lois where he got the information from. Yeah, that Ogilvy grasped them up, so we never find that out, which I thought was quite good. Mm. You know, a little bit of a loose end. Gallo has a kryptonite ring, which is... Is that one of the things that's really caught some traction post-crisis? Lex Luthor had a kryptonite ring, because that was the only sliver of kryptonite, and that eventually was the... Wasn't that the kryptonite he gave to Batman? Or was that a different sliver? I've no idea. I can't remember. We did Dark Knight over Metropolis, but it's been a while (laughs) since since we covered that. Um... I mean, we've already talked about Bridgewater's efforts being essence being trapped in the kryptonite slab, which was a bit hokey. But it's, I didn't think it was a deal breaker. And I did like that each chapter sets up what Bridgewater's been up to for 29 years. Yeah. So that was quite it's, interesting. They start off as little stories that don't seem to be to link to anything. Yeah. But then they not only form their own story, but tie into the main one as well. Yeah. And then it all dovetails at the end, yeah. which is a masterful piece of plotting, which yeah. is, again, comparing Cook and or Sale to Ditka, yeah. who was a master at doing that, setting up lots of different, different dominoes, oh, yeah. and then knocking them all over Just so at the end. Just how you know, all the titles that make up the, the new God stuff, how they all tie together. Well, that's Kirby, not Ditka, but the, yeah, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. It's the same thing. It's seeing how all your plotting dovetails together at the end. Another lovely little subtle bit here. Um, Lois is setting up the date with Gallo on page 37 and Gallo asks her to come round tonight and Clark scowls. Yeah, and then on the next page he's smiling. And then when she says, I've got a date tonight that I wouldn't dream of breaking and he's grinning. Yeah. Because we later find out her engagement is with Superman. Mm-hmm. So that was lovely. Lovely little subtle moment. And I've said before when we cover Superman on the show there is no bad when it's Superman versus nature. Yeah. Superman versus nature is like Superman versus big giant robots. <laughs> there is nothing wrong with that. And I especially love it when Superman is awed by nature's power and majesty, like he is with this volcano erupting. It's really quite chilling, though. Beautifully coloured. Yeah. The lava stuff is beautifully coloured. Especially colored. compared to the, the slithers of Lois's yeah. panels. Yeah, and with Lois is getting ready for the day. Which... The, her, the the song she's singing, how the lyrics change as we progress through the night. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, I hadn't even noticed that. Yeah, that's absolutely brilliant. Yeah, well yeah. done. That's that's really good. Yeah, the lyrics match what she's feeling at that particular moment. Notice as well, and I, I don't keep meaning to compare this to Batman, Superman, and such, but I'm going to notice that this version of Superman doesn't just hover above people that he's trying to rescue. Yeah, he just gets on with rescuing them saving them from the the trees that are on fire and what's really good about this is the terror on superman's face when he gets engulfed and starts swallowing the lava that panic yeah and he he doesn't know his limits yet so he's genuinely scared at that moment when he gets to the point where i can't breathe and eventually he does find his way out and vomits lava all over the floor Mm. but christ-like imagery did think it laid it on a bit heavy with the oh there was a dog on fire and a woman threw herself into the lava Mm. I thought that just I know it's to emphasise Superman's guilt but I thought it was very heavily laid on yeah 
Well, it's and it's like as well. Superman feels guilty for that woman's death now. That clearly was not his fault. If she threw herself into the lava. Yeah. That's you know she could have taken it the other way. She could have taken it as a sign, or taken him as an angel or whatever. Yeah, because that would have worked as well. But yeah, yeah. I mean, I think you had enough drama here with him being concerned that he can't breathe mm. and that vomiting the lava. That's quite a good panel, isn't it? Yeah. Again, it's not really something that well, we've seen. Those before. three panels in the middle of the next page as well. Yeah. It's a very quiet moment where Jonathan goes out of the room. Yeah. And uh, tells him, yeah, you really shouldn't tell your mum about this stuff. Which is, uh, that pays off later when Martha says, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And then he's in a bad mood with him. And Jonathan's like, what did I do? Which is great. Because we don't always get to know why people have been uh, so looking at us. Um, she's talking to her mum. Lois is talking to her mum on the phone while she's waiting for Superman. And um, that's none of your business. Are we supposed to be talking about this? Fine. No, we haven't. Are you happy now? Yeah. What are we talking about, though? Don't know. No, I went straight over my head as yeah, well. Yeah, yeah. To be honest with you, um, Cook emphasises all Superman is losing through cutting between the volcano and Lois losing patience and going to to Garlo, and he goes and sees her at the end after he's got his costume fixed, presumably at home, and sees Gallo dropping her off outside her apartment, and he's got a brilliant. You only see just him in profile, face. Yeah. but Sale just captures his facial expression. How has he done that from that <laughs> angle? It's brilliant, isn't it? So there's no fault in his artwork, though. It's, Wait. it's a good page, and it's just a page. Yeah. It has room to breathe, and there's a lot of space. And Lois going, uh, hi? Yeah. Like, yeah, I know, I've just done something. She's, a, she's insufferably cute in this. Mm. He does draw a very, very cute Lois Lane in this. It's also nice to have a, a Pa and Ma Kent scene as Clark tries to work out what's happening. These were really important post-crisis and in Lois and Clark, the TV show, as they gave Clark a grounding and somebody to speak to. Yeah. Which he's not had for a while, as far as I know. Well, I'm, I, I didn't think I'd read this, but I must have done, because I've always remembered the scene at the end when he finds out his real parents... Oh, yeah. Jonathan and Martha oh so do we call you this now and he says no I'm, I'm your son that's, that's a lovely scene that. that's, yeah so I must have read this because I've always remembered that remembered. So, well that's interesting that that's the scene you remember it's the yeah. emotional bit the, the human bit so you want us to call you Kal-El now and he says mm. no no I've, I've been a bit confused well, of late but my name's Clark so to me that's always been the most important thing about Superman mm. is that he is Clark Kent yeah. You know, like, the, the, the scene at the end of Kill Bill where it's like, oh, Clark Kent's the mask. No, it's Clark. Well, in the 50s, who disguised as Clark Kent? That's where that comes from. The yeah. line is disguised as Clark Kent. Yeah. And I think that, that gives an erroneous impression that Superman's the real person and Clark's the disguise. But yeah. No, you're right. I agree with I that. Guess Clark's the person. There's also that level of adoption as well. Yeah. And who is your family? Yeah, because that's what he's talking about as well, isn't Yeah. It? That you know, you raised me. You were the ones that raised me. You were the ones that were here every day. Mm. I've got nothing but respect for my Kryptonian heritage and parents, but they didn't bring me up. Yeah, you brought me up, and that's that's a really nice moment. I love the shadow across Superman's face mm. when he's talking to Lois at, the, at page sixty-one, which is the first page of book three. And there's, 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 the conversation between Lois and Superman is really very well written. Yeah. There's some brilliant dialogue. I love it when Lois is asking Superman where he was that he stood her up and his matter of fact response is volcano. 
So it's, where was it? Earthquake, death ray, old lady crossing the street? Volcano. Mm. And it's just deadpan. Yeah. It's, very, it's a very funny response. And I like that she's she's angry at him for standing her up, but she can't be because he's Superman. Yeah. It's a very mature Lois Lane. Yeah. I mean, the problem sometimes with Lois is she can be written as a bit catty. Mm. And selfish. And there's a little bit of that at the end of Superman 2 where it's beautifully played. Where Lois knows who he is before he gives her the super kiss. Right. And she, sa- and she says, ah, do you know what it's like? Knowing who you are and not being able to sell anyone and everything that you can do. And I know it's not fair of me mm. to feel this way because the world needs you. But I can't help it. I can't help feeling what I feel. And this is kind of like that. But Lois is the strong one here, not Superman. Yeah. Lois is the one that ends the relationship. Which shows Superman's weakness. Yeah. And it's it's very, very heartbreaking. Yeah. It's really sad. Superman's tiny little face. Yeah. And it's 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 it, it earns its its right to exist for scenes like that. Yeah. Where Cook just nails the Superman Lois Lane dynamic. And but he's Lex Luthor's with a few problems that we'll mention when we get to the last issue. Right. Is Lex Luthor's pretty good. Mm. I like that he's very Machiavellian in how he's manipulating the scenes and, and everything like that. He hired the Royal Flush Gang. Yeah. Which we learn here. Well, the Royal Flush Gang have a line, remember to keep cameras on him. Yeah. And that pays off here. Yeah, because it's Lex that keeps monitoring who Superman is. But we get to page 50, 68, sorry. This is my favourite scene in the book. <laughs> I absolutely love this. Superman's doing therapy. Yeah. Where he's talking through his problems. And again, Sale does that thing where he pulls, he zooms in this time instead of pulling out. And we zoom in on Superman and see that he's talking to a polar bear. Yeah. <laughs> a sleeping polar bear. Yeah, the polar bear. He, he looks a bit fed up. Yeah, it's like, it's like an airplane. <laughs> yeah. Superman's been regaling him with his problems all day. Now the polar bear's like, yeah, I need to go and catch some fish, dude. Mm. I'm hungry. And the the costume looks a bit darker though. I wonder I, if that was on purpose. I think so, but it he draws. It seems to be they go for the darker blue in this story anyway. They go for quite light because the colouring is very good on this to match the the tone. Yeah, I like the darker blue. Mm. I mean, I know when we covered Superman Spider Man, we said Spider Man's blues are darker. Yeah, but I I liked the colour of Dean Cain's outfit, with the exception of the 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 boots, which were maroon. Right, okay. But the the darker blue next to the red, I think, I think he's better. Yeah. And I think I didn't have any problem with Brandon Routh's blue. It's his red that I had a problem with because right. it wasn't red. Yeah. It so, was maroon. Yeah, it was maroon. So this cape should be red, but these are choices that they make in these things, aren't they? Uh, Luther's jealousy when Superman arrives at the sick kids' benefit is is, <laughs> is beautiful. Yeah. Superman arrives with this big cake. It hardly seems fitting we hear from a circus strongman with a penchant for baking. Mm. How Superman baked that cake then? That's not. Maybe. Uh, no, Martha did, did it. Yeah. How the hell did Martha make a cake that big? <laughs> so it's, a, it's a big farm. It is. Unless the polar bear helped him. Yeah. <laughs> he, what, he, he has a, a super oven in yeah. the, on the fortress. In the fortress of solitude, yeah, he has a super oven. Yeah. I'm pretty sure in an old Golden Age comic he did bake a big cake. I'd have to cast my mind back. But I, I do like sure. Bob Fisher in now. Luther saying uh, very quietly, oh my, "We're going to have a new X-ray," <laughs> and then Superman comes like, "Yep, four point two, forty-two million dollars." <laughs> yeah, we're going to need a building to put Luther's X-ray machine. <laughs> that was a great line. <laughs> 
that was funny. That, that was very, very funny. And then when Lois is talking with him and gives him the thing from Gallo that the catch is, you've got to accept it. And uh, he actually says to her, Luther's not going to like this. And Lois says, consider that a bonus. Yeah. Some of the dialogue in this is really good. Mm. I'm, I'm really a big fan of, of the, the dialogue. But... Superman flies towards the utopia, which concludes this chapter of the book. But he's he's not going to Gallo at this point. He's going to help Jimmy. Yeah. Because they just got the phone call. So in flying over the utopia at the exact moment that Gallo opens the door, mm. that's a bit coincidental, isn't it? I guess. But And likewise, as we get into chapter four, was Luther's attack on Superman just as he falls out of the sky, was that also just a coincidence? I mean, I know this is the armoured car robbery that Jimmy is called Superman 2. Yeah. So is it just coincidence that this was near the Utopia building well, and were, Superman was exposed to They were attacking tonight? the Utopia trucks. Yes. So, so Luther set that up. It could be close to it. Oh, right. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Mm. Yeah, so the fact that... So it's only a coincidence that Gallo happened to have the door open as Superman flew over. Yeah. Everything else does fit into place. Mm. Alright, I'll let them have one coincidence. <laughs> I don't mind that. Especially when you can watch any other number of stories and reel off how many fantastic coincidences there are to make it work. That's true. Yeah, that's uh, right. There was a neat bit earlier on, actually. Yeah, go on. With, uh, which foreshadowed the potential of, of Gallo being the bad guy. Mm. His father had a scar on his face. Yeah. And as Gallo gets into the kryptonite chamber at the end of the last issue... Yeah. There's a panel which shows a green sliver across his eye where his dad's Right, yeah. See again? I did say it, and now there's a lot of little yeah. subtle bits in the art that are telling the story as well as the dialogue and, and everything else. So that's pretty cool. I do wonder as well, do you think Cook did some thumbnail layouts for this? Because there's some panels of the fight between Superman and, and Luther's goons. That's a Darwin Cook panel on yeah. page 88. And likewise, page 91. Mm. That's not. That doesn't look like Tim Sale. That looks like Tim Sale either channeling Darwin Cook, or Darwin Cook did a sketch of it, or a loose pencil, or whatever. Yeah. What do you think? Maybe he did. Maybe some, some rough layouts. Yeah, possibly because that does look very much like Cook's doing something. Uh, Lois is such a good journalist in this, which, and it's always nice to see Lois be portrayed as such. On page 95, she actually confronts Perry and says, uh, my instincts are jibing with yours. Yeah. I don't think Gallo's a bad guy. Mm. I thought that was interesting, because they're both right. They are. Because of how the story eventually turns out. So that was good. And I really did like the, the cliffhanger ending, where they get to Clark's apartment with Superman and Jimmy, and Clark opens the door. In his, in his dressing gown. Yeah, I love his Hugh Hefner <laughs> dressing gown. <laughs> It's you and his, his natty slippers. Yeah. Like so, that's what Clark does at night. He just goes home and drinks coffee on his own. Yeah, oh, do you think that's well, warm it, milk? It, it can't be coffee. It's probably like tea or something. Yeah. Like, too late for coffee. Warm milk. Yeah, yeah. yeah so that's Yes, he's having a cocoa <laughs> before he goes to bed. I do like Superman's flight, flight, flight passing before life passing, passing before his eyes. I cannot speak. It's the end of. Krypton, isn't it? Yeah, he sees the end of Krypton, but then it's him and Lois in front of a red moon. Well, I thought it was him and Lois, but it turns out to be his parents. Oh, so it does. Again? Mm. Subtle stuff. Good stuff. Well spotted, that man. There's a reason I kept you around. 
I mean, you've already said that you don't like these openings. I like that they never tip their hand. No, I like them. I just didn't like what they led to. Right, okay. So the beginning of each chapter is a, a bit more in the life of what Bridgewater's been up to and how he came to be. As well as, as we get along, it starts offering insights into Gallo and his rise to power. Yeah. From, you know, killing his parents and, and all that stuff. I, I did like that. Like I say, it never, it never tips his hand whether Bridgewater's good or bad until he gets to the end. He's just a, a passive yeah. witness. He's the watcher. Yeah. He's just a passive observer. It's really good. Of course, Clark was a Superman robot, which I actually <laughs> didn't see coming. No, yeah. Because... How's he going to get out of this one? Yeah, my default setting is post-crisis, where he didn't have Superman robots. I know, I robots. like that there's a closet full of them, but they're all in different outfits for different... <laughs> for different situations. For different times of the day, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so I need robot number three <laughs> that's dressed like Hugh Hefner. Yeah. And uh, robot number three goes, oh, okay. <laughs> oh, did it activate, like he just says, robo-activate, and depending on the time, <laughs> it wakes one of them up. So one of them's only programmed to wake up between, say, like, uh, one and three, and the other one's six and four, or whatever. Yeah, I mean, how does this work? Because he didn't seem to have time to phone home to tell the robot to activate. So does he just have a Clark Kent robot wandering around just his apartment? Safe, yeah. All the time. <laughs> maybe, maybe there is. So he's Clark Kent robots there to pick up Amazon packages and sign for him. And all yeah, that. Maybe Why is it work? There are sensors. <laughs> yeah, all right. I, I don't know how it worked, but it was cool. It I quite like it. Right. Yeah, and there's also the thing there as well. Jimmy should never ever suspect Clark of being Superman. Then. Yeah. Because this goes back to what we've discussed before. If you've been in the same room... As both of them. Why would you ever think they were the same person? Yeah. So, you know. Well, it's like in Zero Year, where the first thing they do is make sure that Batman rescues Bruce Wayne so that it's never doubted they're the same person. Yeah, so the ne- never again do they, do they throw shade on that idea yeah. that Superman and Clark Kent are the same person or what. And of course Martha's baking a, 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 a Of course she is. I love the size of Martha's hand compared to Superman's. Yeah. And that's a really nice touch. All the scenes with Jonathan and Martha are great in this book. And I like that she confronts him about what Jonathan said. And then, you can get your own damn pie, Jonathan Kent. <laughs> what did I do? Yeah. <laughs> that's marriage. She just walked him through the door. Yeah. Good old Jonathan. And I, I like that. Well, like I said, uh, we begin in this, uh, page 117. At the beginning of the, the show, Coop takes a left turn. And... I liked that the Bridgewater story doesn't go where you think it's going to go. Yeah. I honestly thought the reveal for this was that he was going to be malevolent, that he yeah. was going to be evil. Um, him taking this information that Ogilvy sold to him and just going straight to Lois with it was massively unexpected. Mm. You know, normally there'd be lots of comic book shenanigans yeah. before we eventually learn the truth, wouldn't there? And here he just goes straight to Lois and tells her outright what's going on. Mm. Now, there's some self-interest there. He needs Superman's help to get back to his home world. Yeah. So this just kind of speeds up his timetable. But at what point was he going to tell Lois about this anyway? Because clearly that's what he's after. Well, he was, was he going to tell Lois? Well, he needs the, Superman. Well, the catch for donating the $42 million is for Superman to collect it himself. Right. That's a perfect opportunity to tell him. Right, yeah, you're right. So Superman coming over, he then probably would have outlined to him what was going on. Yeah. But having to involve Lois here... Lois was never a part of the plan. No. It was Perry who forced Lois on 
Well, yeah, so with Ogilvy yeah. going to Lois and him finding out Lois is investigating him, he's probably thought, right, well, the best thing to do is just to come clean yeah. and tell her what I'm really up to. Which, again, though, still works in no mm. comic book shenanigans. It's actually a very logical and intelligent way of dealing with the problem. So it goes into what we were saying earlier about the plotting's really good, knocking all the dominoes down at the end. It, it, it brings Superman's the mystery of Superman's power loss when he's flying over the Utopia building, Luther's double-cross, the Gallo story, the sentient Kryptian subplot, all to a masterful conclusion. Whilst we get to the end where Gallo slash Bridgewater tells him about Krypton, and that's when Lex Luthor and his goons show up. Yeah. Just as Superman's gone off into the Matrix to explore what Krypton <laughs> is. But this, and this plays into my problem that I had with Lex Luthor in this story. For the most part, he's kind of behind the scenes pulling the strings. We don't get any indication that the Daily Planet is investigating Luthor mm. in this story. But he's a little bit too overt. I mean, Jimmy calling him an ass on page 133 is funny. And he deserved it. Yeah. Because he is a bit of an ass. But then he says, you know, you're going to have to kill us all. And Luthor says, don't tempt me. And that just seems a bit too obvious for Lex. Mm. Do you know what it means? He should have stayed back up. Yes. Yeah. Watching this. Yeah, it seems a bit obvious to me that Lex would have gone with them here. Yeah. Like you say, yeah, he would have stayed behind at Lexcar, watching it all from a safe distance. Mm. He wouldn't have dirtied his hands. So, you know, that kind of didn't really work for me. Yeah. But I can, again, it's not a deal breaker in my enjoyment of the story. It was nice to see Jarrell with the headband again. From the animated series. Well, and the original. <laughs> Oh, yeah, the yeah. The 50 stuff. Yeah. So all of that was quite nice. And I did think Luther was absolutely correct. Gallo killing himself was very convenient. Mm. But the implication here is Bridgewater has affected him over his consciousness being transferred. And the death of his parents was traumatic. And so he pulled the trigger. And he's only just remember. Well, not remembering, but feeling yeah. a, a reaction to that. Yeah, I think so. Because he actually says, Mummy, Mum, forgive me. But, so is the implication of that that he was a good guy from the start? And no. Just... I think the implication there is Bridgewater has brought out some human emotion in it. Because mm. that plays into the science fiction angle of the story, that the two most human people in this story <laughs> are, the are the two aliens. aliens. Yeah. Which is, that's, that's another quite interesting subtext to the story as well. Mm that Gallo was this irredeemable monster and the influence of the alien has made him human yeah. and made him feel what, what he's done so that was it was convenient but again I'm willing to go with it the uh, those panels as we count down to Kryptonite blowing up mm. getting more scruffier and scruffier yeah until it's a very kind of loose and rough scratchy final panel yeah uh, Sale is masterful at, at zooming in and pulling out mm. and knowing how to judge all that on the comic book page. And not just zooming in on yeah. the computer. Yeah. And yeah, you're absolutely right. He doesn't do that thing where he's zooming in on the same piece it's, of it's art. It's a very cinematic way of conveying a scene. Mm. So, he's, he, so he's not using it as a cinema, as a film, but he's using a cinematic approach to... But doing it in it. comics. Yeah. He's doing a comics equivalent of zooming in on somebody. Maybe like with that Roy Schneider thing with the backgrounds receding. Yeah. As he's zooming in and on he's, his face. He's, he's using, you know, the, the medium as well. So it's yeah. not just zooming in, it's getting scruffier. It's, show, it's conveying emotion. Yeah. But it's like you say, he's not just used the same piece of art and zooming in on it like Malik's Malieve does. Yeah. 
So, you know, Tim Sale's consummate professional, though, isn't it? And Superman gets rescued because Jimmy's cool. Yeah. In this book. Jimmy gets to put a gun in somebody's face. He does, yeah. Not the other way around. And it gets to be Lex Luthor, which is, which is quite good. They're all stood around. Gallo, who's blown his brains out. They're all getting blood all over their shoes. Well, there's quite um, a weird but strong panel where it's Gallo's head with a hole in it and then Superman lying next to him with Lewis on it. Yeah, that one though. Yeah. That is, you know, a lot of the work in this is really strong, isn't it? Mm. Then we get to the end. Um, I didn't quite get the jeopardy of the ending, I have to say. Right. I mean, if we're going to take the make out of Batman vs Superman for, for being a bit stupid and it's ending. Okay. When he could have just had a chat with Wonder Woman and said, here's a kryptonite spear. Yeah. This ending is pretty much the same. Superman has to carry the chamber of kryptonite into the sun. Yeah. So he's wearing a lead suit. Which um, lo- it looks like the space suit from the animated from, from series. From the animated series. Did I have a toy on? That you had an action figure on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's absolutely true. So the lead chamber melts as they get close to the sun. Bridgewater's physical form erupts free as the kryptonite chunk shatters. Yeah. Fine. But couldn't Superman have gotten close to the sun and then just thrown it well, into they, they the sun? Well, they even say that. Yeah. Superman says, well, from a storytelling point of view, he has to go into the sun and face it. We had a scene earlier on where he goes into the volcano and he panics. He doesn't know what his weaknesses are and he swallows the lava and that's him learning what his weakness is. Mm. So this is him taking that and he's going into a massive <laughs> pile of lava. Yeah. He's going into the sun. He's That is his weakness. It, it's mirroring the scene earlier. With the lava. Yeah. Right. This time he's strong enough to know what he's doing. Okay, I can get that and I can get behind that. I still think it would have been smart to just throw it. Oh, it would have been smart. But, all right. But, yeah, but you're right. We don't have those two parallels from earlier on in this, and we don't have yeah. Superman confronting his fear. Yeah. If we don't have this scene. All right. Okay. I will. I will give you that. That's because that's right. <laughs> so that's why I'll give it. Uh, also, there's another Jonathan and Martha Kent at the end, which is absolutely brilliant. Notice that Tim Sale draws exactly the same. Kent Farm that he draws in Superman for All Seasons. All oh, right, okay. Which I thought was a nice touch. And like you said earlier on, this is just a beautiful scene where I suppose you want us to call you Kal-El now. And he says, no, my name's Clark, which is the name my mum and dad gave me. Yeah. That's lovely. That's absolutely brilliant. And it's as Clark that he asks Lois out, mm-hmm. not Superman. As he starts to Superman come to Superman can never commit, but Clark can. But Clark can, yeah. And it's a nice final panel. It is. It's a very Darwin Cook final panel. It is. Clark dressed in his fedora and long overcoat. Yeah. And Lois looking every inch the 40s dame. And the the uh, the steam coming up from the grids yeah, in the city behind. As they walk past the, the diner or whatever the hell that is that they're walking past. And, but that one's credited to Cook Sale. Right. Well, is it not just a creative team credit? It may be. But, like... I'm not entirely unconvinced that Cook didn't do some thumbnail layouts. Yeah. I mean, in the sketches at the end... They're all Sale. It all does seem to be Tim Sale. And certainly there's enough Tim Sale in it. I mean, he does say, Tim Sale's thing at the end, he does say he basically stole from Darwin Cook on how to draw Lois. See, I, I didn't notice any of that. It looks Did you? Like, it looks like a Tim Sale woman. Because Darwin Cook and Tim Sale are very good at women, but different kinds of yeah. women so Tim Sale takes a very minimalist approach to women mm. you know it's eyes nose mouth her and that's about it yeah. whereas Darwin Cook he's 
So they're very similar, both good but quite different. Bruce Tim has a very similar approach as well. He does, yeah. They're very similar to Dale. Bruce Tim's quite good with these women as well. Yeah. So. They all come from the same school, though, don't they? Yeah, they're, they're all curvy. Yeah. Women. Well, just those those artists, curvy as well. Yeah, they all come from that same vintage, yeah. I suppose. Alright, well, you know, instead of Superman Returns or Man of Steel, why can't you just film this? Yeah. I mean, granted, this wasn't out when Superman Returns was, but still... Yes. It's an excellent Superman story. It's certainly one of the best since the turn of the century. Hmm. Isn't it sad that you can say that 16 <laughs> years into the 21st century and you can count on one hand the number of great Superman stories we've had since then? Oh, yeah. Cook tells an old story in a new way, takes a new twist and turn along the way, manages to keep the reader guessing, not easy with the character has been around for 75 plus years. Tim sails out, gorgeous, I can't help but wish Cook had drawn it. Yeah. I still think that's the big takeaway from this. this is the story we got. But, yeah, so let's judge it on what it is, not what we want it to be. This seems to have slid under the radar somewhat, being part of a series that's cancelled only a few issues after this finally saw print. It deserves better. Yeah. Because it's the most Superman story I've read in years. Isn't that the problem with most anthologies, though? There was Superman Confidential. Did Batman have one? Legends of the Dark Knight. Yeah, Legends of the Dark Knight as well. Uh, Justice League had one as well. Yeah, Legends of the DC Universe. Yeah, so there were a lot of anthology titles that told good stories, but because they were an anthology... Instead of separate minis. They've never been recognised. Yeah, because there are loads of good Legends of the Dark Knight stories that have slipped under the radar. There wasn't just Gothic Yeah. in 150 issues. There was some pretty damn good stories in that run. Uh, did you enjoy this? Uh, I, I did. Yeah, uh, it's it, it was a, it was a, essentially a, a Silver Age Batman story, a Superman story. Yeah, but with with twenty first century human emotions. It worked by having two Silver Age esque talents on it. Yeah, I loved it. I really did enjoy it. I was willing to give a pass to any of the little problems I found with it. It's, it's, I think I preferred it as more of an um, an emotional yeah. story rather than science fiction one. Yeah. Yeah, no, it looks out the way. Yeah, I thoroughly enjoyed reading it again. Mm. I'm glad that we did. I'm glad that we covered it. And this only came about because somebody on Facebook, and I'd love to remember who it was. So if it was you, <laughs> I apologise because this is the problem with Facebook conversations. Yeah, we were on about maybe we should do a tribute to Darwin Cook, and somebody on Facebook says, "What about Superman Kryptonite?" Yeah, because that was that was you know I had the same thought as well because I remember when I found out, mm. which was a very grueling day. Yeah, with all the rumours sticking about. Mm. Uh, yeah, I, I, I pulled out New Frontier and sat down and read all of that. Um, I just bought a load of Comixology the day before. Well, it was the only thing, I, and I said that to him, because I picked up New Frontier the day we saw him, and I said, I love your work, you know, you, but everything I've read is my dad's, mm. so I, I just bought this so he could sign it. That's nice of it. Yeah. So yeah, I just bought, I just read before the news came in that he died, that um the DC New Frontier special that's not in my absolute but yeah, is in your is hardcover mine, yeah. and that's a, a better Batman versus Superman with Wonder Woman fight oh, than the one is, that's in the it's film it's great yeah because they fight and it, is, it works and then at the end they say why are we fighting yeah. why, why don't we just stage a fight and then we just be mates yeah and Wonder Woman saying grow up yeah that's great absolutely brilliant stuff so rest in peace Mr. Cook you will be missed Next time on an all-new episode of Hey Kids Comics, I think it's going to be Bronze Age team-ups. Because mm. there's no way I'm going to have all the Superman, Batman, Wonder Woman, Earth 1 stuff written. 
Right. But I've got two weeks before we record that, because yeah. you're off away for two weeks, aren't you? I am. So, that's good news. All right, well, we'll see you next time. Thank you for joining us for this. I hope you enjoyed it. As usual, I did. I always like talking funny books <laughs> with my boy. Yeah. Miss you when you're not here, and we can't do this. All right, see you next time. Bye-bye. Goodbye. A-Kids Comics is a The Devil Will Find Work for Idle Hands to do production and a Two True Freaks presentation. If you wish to buy stuff from Amazon, why not do it through the twotruefreaks.com link, which leaves a couple of pennies in our tip jar. The music used in Hey Kids Comics is used to underscore the synopsis so they're not quite as boring as you just listening to me talk. Michael and Andrew can be reached through Facebook, Twitter, whatever. Why not join us so we can talk about funny books together? Correspondence to the show generally can be sent to heykidscomics at virginmedia.com. Thank you.